Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario Liberals think Mike Schreiner, leader of the Ontario Green Party, should become the new leader of the Liberal Party. Matt Gurney from CBO is going to come on and talk to us about that. After decades of scandals involving heartbreaking cases of abuse and a pandemic that left thousands of residents dead, there are new national standards that have been written for Canada's long-term care homes. But why aren't they mandatory? And the Ontario government's plan for York Region sewage could create a disaster for the Great Lakes. Fatima Syed, journalist with the Narwhal, did the research on that, and she'll join us and talk about it. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, uh, yesterday in the program, of course, we uh, talked with Green Party leader Mike Schreiner. Well, he's the Green Party leader for now, anyway. Uh, and we all know the story now that he has been approached uh, by a number of people in the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, and Schreiner told us on the program yesterday that he has not yet set a deadline for making a decision whether or not he's going to leave the Green Party and take a run at the leadership of the Liberal Party. Uh, says he's uh, no ambition to lead any other party than the Greens, but he's still going to think about doing it anyway, I guess. But before he makes a decision, uh, he said he wanted to get some thoughts from his Guelph constituents, his family, and his colleagues. Is what the Mr. Schreiner had to say, the leader of the Green Party. It's really going to come down to what are people telling me is the best way to advance the issues I care about? Doubling social assistance rates, addressing the climate crisis, housing affordability, defending our public health care and education systems. And on and on it goes. But the overriding question is, uh, you know, why is he even considering this? Uh, he's a Green Party member. And, uh, and well, as Matt Gerdy writes about at TVO.org, uh, do the Liberals not even realize that Mike Schreiner is a Green for a reason? Uh, Matt Gurney, of course, a longtime broadcaster and journalist, uh, it, it with some very insightful comments about uh, this possible action by uh, the leader of the Green Party, Mike Schreiner. And uh, Matt joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good to have you on uh, the program again. How are you doing, Matt? I'm okay, Bill. How are you doing? Uh, a little surprised. and When I heard this story last week, I thought, come on. Um, it, it tell, two things about this, and I know you touched on both of these in the piece, uh, how desperate the Ontario Liberals might be, and, and, and about Mike Schreiner himself. I mean, right in the title of your piece, this guy's a Green Party member. Why would they even think of approaching him? Um, you know what? I'm actually going to quote another Liberal here to explain this. I'm going to think back oh, to something uh, Jerry Butts yeah. said years ago. And he said it about Stephen Harper. He said it about the uh, weird meeting Stephen Harper had in 2015, just before the election that year with uh, Rob and Doug Ford, and they were handing out cash prizes or something. I don't even remember what the hell it was. And Jerry Butts said, people do weird things when they're losing. And I've often thought back to that comment, because I think, first of all, I thought it was an insightful comment. But it also occurred to me at the time, you know, Mr. Butts has, has left government service since then, but is uh, the party he helped put into power is still in power. And I wonder what the weird things Mr. Trudeau will do when he starts to realize he's losing. But to bring it back down to a provincial level here, the Ontario Liberals, they're losing. And I, I wrote a lot last year when they lost this second election. They could explain the first one. They could explain Doug Ford's first term. They could go you know what? We'd been in power for 15 years. We were unpopular. We'd accumulated a lot of baggage. We were a bit tone deaf. We made some mistakes. It was time for the voters to throw us out. That's all part of democracy. They had a narrative that worked for those years between 2018 and 2022. To come back in 2022 and remain a distant, dead last third place, they don't have a narrative anymore. They don't have an easy explanation. 
And rather than try to figure out a way to rebuild the party into something that is relevant and electorally competitive, it looks like not the entire party, but a big piece of it, they're going the gimmick route. Well, and and there are analogies. You and I had the, the same discussion, uh, I guess, among our colleagues as well. Uh, I, I can remember after the Liberals uh, were taken to the woodshed by Stephen Harper back in well, 2006, I guess it was. Uh, and I attended that leadership convention. I covered it in Montreal about a year after that. And the expectation right across that room, Matt, was I, I know they didn't like us and they kicked our butts out of there, but, you know, we'll be back. They, they, they love us. They really do love us. So they just wanted to send us to the penalty box. And I'm sensing the same attitude here. Guys, you've got to earn it back. And, and you you know, it's it's not a divine right. And they, as you say, they're, they're looking for a shortcut there. They're looking for a messiah. What I wrote in 2018, and it's funny talking about being at the events, I was at Liberal Party headquarters in 2018. I was there with the Global News team, and uh, I was there with Kathleen Wynne, and there was just this air of complete make-believe in the room. And I don't think I mean in the sense that they didn't know what was coming. They knew what was coming. They could read the polls. They understood that they were going to have a bad night. Well, I wrote a column that very night. I went home from Liberal Party headquarters, and I guess I was still uh, too amped up on uh, all the caffeine from the free Cokes I'd been drinking. Couldn't drink at the bar, so I had to settle for soft drinks. So the caffeine had me amped up, and I was just thinking about everything that I'd seen there. And I wrote a column that night, and I wrote a column about how the Liberals still didn't get it. They didn't understand that they hadn't just been thrown out because, oh, they'd made this mistake or they, you know, that they'd been in power too long. It was because they'd accumulated a ton of baggage and they had shown no humility. They had no shown no growth. They had shown no ability to say, you know what? We got this one wrong. We've listened and we're going to do better in the future. And I think this was best encapsulated. And we're going back into the mist of time here a bit. But when the public was completely fed up with the liberals, when the public had decided that the Ontario liberals were not trustworthy, could not deliver on their promises and could not be believed, Kathleen Wynne comes out with the sorry, not sorry ad, which even as I'm watching it then, like here I am, I I wasn't even like, I'm plunked down on my couch watching TV one day at home and this ad comes on and I'm like munching a bag of you know, Fritos or something. And I see this ad come on and I'm not watching it as a journalist in that moment. I'm just watching it as a citizen. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is the most tone deaf piece of political messaging I've ever seen in my life. And all my smart liberal friends spend the next couple of weeks insisting, no, in fact, it's brilliant. It's exactly what the party needs. And then they get completely blown out. And immediately, like before the dust is settled on election night, all all the smart liberals who'd spent weeks telling me how brilliant the ad was are going, well, maybe it was off message. Maybe it wasn't the right message for Ontarians here. The party has not yet been honest with itself about why it was rejected in the first place. It has not been honest with itself about the damage it did to its own brand. It is not a victim of circumstance. It is a victim of bad decisions. And until and unless they start to admit that and actually begin to acknowledge where they went wrong, I don't see any reason for the voters to give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, and as you mentioned in the piece, this is not about Schreiner. I mean, you know, I, I've had Mike Schreiner on the program a number of times, and, and uh, you, you categorized him as, a, as a, somebody who's a thoughtful, serious guy. I think he's got a, a pretty good reputation as a politician, but as a Green Party politician. And as, as we dissected, and, you know, we do that in the media all the time after elections, what went wrong with the Liberals again, the number one 
consensus point that I saw from almost everybody was you guys have got to find out who you are and define who you are and tell people who you are because nobody knows. You're too far to the left. Are you are you NDP light? Are you a conservative? I don't we don't know. And, and be, until you can identify who you are, how can how can anybody relate to you? And how could even Mike Schreiner or Matt Gurney or anybody else relate to the party? Yeah, I I think that's exactly it. And I think, you know, the liberals, at least federally, do have a habit of doing the the leader swap, the the leader swap, I should say, you know, talk to a liberal. It's like, what are what are your values? Canadian values? What are Canadian values? Liberal values? Well, what are liberal values? Whatever the leader tells us they are like, they are a party that has been a very disciplined electoral machine. They're very good at politics. And I don't say that as a smear. I say that with admiration. Liberals in general are the best politicians we have in this country. But they tend to need a strong agenda to be set by a leader. Their ideology is something of a moving target. I don't know right now what the Ontario Liberals stand for. I don't know where they stand on the issues. During the last provincial election, just for like a minute there, they actually did sort of step out and differentiate themselves on an issue. They said they were going to make mandatory uh, COVID-19 vaccinations uh, required for elementary school children. Everybody hated the idea. and They never brought it up again. What was Stephen Del Duca running on? And I, I, I guess that's semi-rhetorical, Bill, because I don't expect you to have an easy answer <laughs> for that. But you and I are like we are. I, I, and this is going to sound like I'm patting us on the back here. I'm just trying to state this objectively. You and I are professional seasoned political observers like this is literally what we get paid for. I couldn't tell you what the centerpiece of the Ontario liberal election campaign was last time, other than we're the liberals vote for us. Yeah, and because there were changes. I mean, this was not an election as usual. I mean, you know, Doug Ford reinvented himself uh, three months before that election and, and, you know, started cozying up to unions and all sorts of other things. They thought, well, okay, that's not what we're used to, but we know where he is now. He's defined himself and and he's stuck to those. And and I think people feel comfortable with that. Uh, And you're right, the Ontario Liberals, well, for the last two elections, uh, their their mantra seemed to be, well, we're not Doug Ford. (laughs) Okay, but, but what are you? They don't seem to have an answer for that. No. And I think, to be honest about this, the fact that they are even trying to go out and and find a leader from another party is really a recognition of that. And I, I look, I give I give some recognition to the fact you got to be fair that this is not the Ontario Liberal Party itself as an institution saying, hey, it would be a great idea if we did this. This is a group of Ontario liberals as private citizens doing this, and they have every right to do this here. But can we just talk political strategy here for a minute? Can you imagine, no matter what Schreiner says, he says yes, he says no, I don't know. But can you imagine going forward every attack against the Liberal parties, the party so intellectually bankrupt it had to borrow another party's leader? The if if it's not if it is Schreiner, the guy is going to get tarred as a political opportunist who bailed on his beliefs the moment he saw an opportunity to have more power, and he'll be accused of being in that way a very typical liberal. If he doesn't come over and someone else ends up running the liberal uh, the Ontario Liberal Party, that person will be accused of being a candidate so unpopular half his party wanted to go recruit a guy from a totally different party to run it here. They have poisoned their own well here. Yeah, but as you mentioned, they've got lots of time. I mean, it's three and a half years till the next election. Why are they even rushing this process? Uh, I, I go back to the point about defining who you are and what you are, and then trying to find somebody who's actually going to do that. They seem to think that whoever this new leader is going to be uh, is going to define the party. And that, that's kind of putting the process backwards, isn't it? 
Um, I mean, I would say it is, but like I said a few minutes ago, for the Ontario, for the typical Canadian liberal, that is often the way they do this: pick the leader who they think has the best chance to carry them to power, build the party's policies and platform around that leader and whatever that leader believes, and then run with it. And you and I could be critical of this bill, but I mean, you can't argue with success. Um, in in my adult life, overwhelmingly, it has been. Ontario liberals running my home province and in the entire history of this country, overwhelmingly, it has been federal liberals running the country here. So it's not like they're wrong entirely. There is some method to their madness here. What I will point out, though, Bill, and this is just a strategic thing, and I know we're tight on time. I don't mean to burn your whole your whole morning show here, but um, look anywhere west of Ontario. Provincially, the liberals are dead. They just don't exist. It's two party races between conservative and, and, uh, more, more progressive parties by any other name. The, the, the names sometimes differ, but you got a right party, you got a left party. Ontario yeah. has been the exception in recent years and still actually had a strong, viable centrist party. Quebec used to have a strong liberal party. We haven't heard from them lately. Th- there is a lot of potential here for the Ontario liberal party to actually in an election cycle or two to be functionally extinct. And that just brings me right back to what I started with when Jerry Butts warned us that when people are losing, they do weird things. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, they're, yeah, you know, the BC Liberals still have a breath in them, uh, but but the, the Liberal Party of British Columbia is really a conservative party. It's a small C conservative party, and, and they, they've adopted the name, and pretty much the same in Quebec when uh, when Jean Charest was uh, was the premier. I mean, they're the Liberals in name only, but their policies are are far more small C conservative, uh, and I think that's what made them popular. And I think that's why the liberals have done as well as they have historically, because they found the middle ground. Okay. Those, those guys over there are there. Yeah. They're too far to the left. The conservatives, yeah, just they all they care about is big business. And those were the characterizations we had. And the liberals staked out the middle ground. I felt pretty comfortable because I think most Canadians feel comfortable in the middle, but the Ontario liberals have abandoned that. They've gone to the left and, and Doug Ford and his team simply said, okay, we'll fill that void, uh, which is why he won as big as he did. I think that's basically bang on. And I think the other problem for the liberals is they need to decide what what party they're hoping to uh, threaten here. Are they going to be a pragmatic, rightward-leaning, solutions-oriented party that is uh, respectful of uh, social conservative beliefs, even if they don't embrace them, uh, good with small business, everything like that? Or are they going to be fighting it out with the NDP and downtown writings to be who can be the, uh, the wokest of the woke? I'm not saying that entirely dismissively here. There is an identity party here. Federally, the liberals have been beating the NDP at their own game on that front. Provincially, I don't think we know yet which one is going to come out on top here. Right now, if I had to put a bet, and you've already said this, Bill, we have three years to go. But if I had to put a bet right now, gun to my head, I'd bet on the NDP. Matt Gurney uh, from TVO. Always uh, insightful, always thought-provoking when you write this stuff. Matt, thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate it. (laughs) Anytime, man. Have a great day. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all remember, of course, the, the crisis on long-term care facilities when COVID hit. And as we mentioned probably a thousand times, but it bears repeating another thousand, uh, the crisis existed before COVID. The COVID uh, shutdowns and, and everything else just exacerbated the problem and shone the light on it. Well, uh, the federal government promised they were going to come up with some standards here. And that, that list, after a great deal of consultation, was released yesterday. But the health critic for the uh, New Democrats said the Liberals now must enshrine these new standards for long-term care into law to fulfill the pledge in the confidence and supply agreement that would help their minority government in power. 
you may recall, of course, the Liberals committed to legislate safety and long-term care as uh, part of that confidence uh, deal that they stuck with uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. NDP MP Don Davies says the new guidelines released yesterday by Health Standards Association must provide the foundation for that promised legislation. We need to make sure that, that long-term care homes um, are meeting the standards that are set in legislation, the minimum standards. And, uh, you know, that's, I think, what long-term care legislation requires. And if, if it's going to be safe, then those standards have to be in the legislation. And there's a couple of problems that, that we're going to uh, delve into in just a second here with our next guest, uh, because the the, the list and, and the recommendations here, I, I think, are admirable. But, uh, you know, it's all in the enforcement of them and who's going to be compliant and who's not. Uh, to talk about all of this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Laura Tamblin Watts, who is the CEO of Can Age. Uh, Laura, pleasure to have you on the program on such a busy day. Thanks so much for this. Thank you. The thing, one of the things, and, and we can talk about some of the recommendations here. And as I say, I think I think it, this it sets out a blueprint for for long term care facilities uh, to try to address an awful lot of the concerns that many people have raised over the last number of years. But the thing that jumped out at me yesterday as I was reading these. Uh, is the fact that compliance for this is is really not mandatory? It's it's optional. I mean, uh, you know, the, it, what what rules are ever going to be effective if there is no way to enforce them, or, or except to say, hey, it'd be kind of nice if you did this. What are your thoughts on that? We do want to get past. Hey, it would be nice if you did this. So these were drafted by. Um HSO and CSA, which are national accreditation standards with the help of experts from across the country working on a volunteer basis for about two years. And I was part of that process. So I can, can tell you a lot went into it and input from more than 20,000 Canadians as well. So this is incredibly robust. They work with legislation. They don't replace legislation. And of course, a standards association can't make legislation. What we're looking to have happen is more like what Quebec has done. So Quebec has said there needs to be accreditation for all long-term care homes. It might be surprising to folks to know that only Quebec requires that long-term care homes be accredited. So there needs to be accreditation. And then what we want is them to say, look, these are the ones that you need to be accredited against. And then that can be enshrined in the regulations. And there you go. It doesn't solve the problem of the implementation necessarily. It doesn't solve the problem of where the funding and so on is going to come to do that. But it does make it so that the long-term care homes have to live up to these very modern standards. And and that, as you say, is is I guess that's the Cadillac model. And I, I know that some of the other provinces, uh, BC, and I even think Alberta, are, are moving towards that. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the accreditation is is the key, uh, and the linkage here too. But in our situation here in Ontario, uh, to suggest that this is going to be voluntary, and and there, there are a number of of uh, long term care facilities, as you mentioned in the report, uh, here in Ontario, uh, that aren't even accredited, and they don't want to be yeah. accredited, which I find just remarkable. I mean, given well, <laughs> given the fact. First of all, there's more money available for patient care if they're accredited, mm -hmm. but they just don't want to go down that road. And they need to. And this is why these voluntary standards need to become mandatory standards. It's exactly the case. So when we were drafting it, we, know, we knew that we didn't have the ability to force it into legislation. That's why we have to work with the legislators. Now, it was, it was I guess, the kindest thing I can say is deeply surprising to hear the Minister for Long-Term Care, Paul Calandria, receive them yesterday with almost a hand wave and a glance and said, oh, we'll look at them. 
And then he said something that made no sense whatsoever. He said that, you know, he was concerned that these standards would somehow water down the legislation that they brought in. And of course, that's not how standards work with legislation. So it was very confusing to hear him say that. What we need to do is make sure that we, we mobilize around the standards. And then, of course, the piece that has to happen is how do we get them implemented? It's absolutely the case that long-term care needs support and funding. And the federal government has promised $3 billion to kick off the development and implementation of these standards. It's going to be on the table on February 7th. But Ontario will have to decide whether it wants to play politics or whether it wants to fix long-term care. Well, I mean, when you look at some of the recommendations, and, and as I say, they're, they're admirable. Uh, you know, free from neglect, patients should be free from neglect, protected from abuse, have their privacy protected, and their lifestyle choices respected, including living with risk. Uh, and, and maybe uh, Mr. Calandra doth protest too much, because, I mean, when you look at those standards and those recommendations, Laura, uh, they're totally contrary to, to their own province's Bill 7, which is basically, you know, forcing people to go into long-term care facilities not of their choosing. Uh, and you know, it's, it just seems to be the total opposite way here. And it, it just, why why can't Ontario get in, in step with the rest of the country here who seem to be moving away from that? Bill 7 was atrocious and absolutely against the very fundamental things that it was in their own legislation. So, you know, Ontario yeah. had the original, very detailed long-term care legislation. Then they brought in this other version of it, which they've named, you know, the Fixing Long-Term Care Home Act. And really, many of these things are already in that act. And if you look at the Ontario legislation and these regulations, the Residents' Bills of Rights, they're pretty much the same. You know, the the goals and purposes are pretty much the same. But then you have Bill 7, which says, we're taking away your right to consent to admission, which is a requirement, a, a consent to treatment requirement, and we'll put you you know, somewhere between 70 and 150 kilometers away from your own community. So that was just a shocking piece of legislation. Of course, it's being challenged in court and will go up to the Supreme Court of Canada, where I predict they will lose. But it was very disappointing to see them do that. Talk about some of the other things that I think were common uh, concerns and common complaints and very legitimate concerns and complaints. Uh, one was staffing levels, when, when, which is tied obviously to the level of care uh, and and the conditions of the buildings themselves. I, I know that these recommendations address that, uh, but there doesn't seem to be anything here to suggest that this is going to have to happen. Uh, you know, those that are not seeking accreditation, uh, pretty much you're saying, we'll run it our way. Thank you very much. And I you don't know which one of these facilities your loved one's going to be uh, told to go into or maybe maybe the only one that's available. We all like to think that's going to be a common standard here. But as, as you say, this with all the work that you and, and so many others have put into this, it's still kind of a patchwork effort here. It is. And I think it's important to know that long-term care home organizations are on board. Like They want good standards, mostly. They want to live up to... Uh, good models of care. You know, there are always some bad apples, and boy, did we see those really in sharp Christmas during the, you know, COVID-19. But if you have, and I remember one case in COVID where we had 115 residents and three staff members. Like that, you know, you can't function, right? So 
it's working with long-term care organizations to make sure that they have the capability and capacity, that there is enough staffing. We're down 30% from pre-COVID numbers for staffing in Northern Ontario. And I'm not talking really far north. I'm talking sort of Sudbury on up. You know, we have to rely on private agency staff. So these are agencies that you go to, usually in the case of a staffing emergency, to fill a couple of roles there. That's fine. Uh, 80%, 80% of the staffing is being hired at that private extra cost and only 20% of regular staff. So there's a crisis in staffing. And I know that the Ontario government has moved more than they had prior. I wouldn't say quickly, but moved to recruit more staff. But unless we fix the conditions of employment, the standards are going to plummet. You know, the average staff member in long-term care lasts about 18 months because if they get a better paying job in acute care, they leave. So that can be fixed. Well, and and that's the concern that we've had some uh, for the last couple of years as well. It's one thing to say, yeah, we've uh, we've you know loosened the standards in uh, community colleges so they can get in there faster, get out there. Now the foreign train can come in, uh, mm-hmm. and and while they're waiting for their accreditation, they can still work. But but they never never seem to want to talk, Laura, about the people going out the back door that said, I can't do this anymore, or yeah. I've I've got to do something with my life, and this is driving me into the ground. Uh, you've got to address that too, and and I guess what I concerned about is the 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 words here in the in the recommendations well first of all we've covered the mandatory thing but properly funded as mentioned a number of times there's no guarantee uh that that money's going to be there or where it's going to go or who's going to spend it and there's the crux right we need to make sure that these voluntary standards which are developed and that's as far as you know accreditation you can go get picked up into mandatory that that's the leap and then the next leap is okay, how are we going to fund them? And as I say, there's money on the table from the federal government, and they've been very clear that they want the implementation of national standards and are willing to put money in. But I guess the question will be, will the Ford government turn away from both getting standards at this modern adopted level, and will they take no money from the federal government in order to do it? Now that I mean, that would be ludicrous. I think the Ford government sort of hand-waving and comments that we heard yesterday are just so out of sync with what Ontarians are expecting. I think, I think they risk their reputation. I think they risk, you know, voters on this piece. There will be great impatience in Ontario if all the health ministers show up with the prime minister and the Ford government says, you know what? You can't tell us what to do. We're not going to take your money, and we're not going to implement national standards. We, you know, we think we've got it going just fine here. And, I mean, it's ludicrous. Yeah. 40,000 people on the waiting list. Exactly. Uh, Laura, thank you for the great work that you and so many others have done on this, and thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Take care. Laura Tamler Watts, the CEO of CanAge. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the messier aspects of uh, the Ford government's uh, build more homes uh, legislation uh, is going to have to do with, uh, well, waste products. Uh, it's, it's one thing about where they're building them in the green belt, and we could debate that, and we'll continue to debate that in the courts too, uh, and, and the number of houses. Uh, but when you got a whole bunch of people living there that weren't living there before, there's going to be an increase in waste. And uh, where does it go? How is it going to be treated? And uh, what kind of an impact 
is this going to have on our ecosystems and on the Great Lakes? This is amazing. Uh, when I read the, the research that was done on this from our next guest, uh, that this is not just a, a little you know area of the green belt here and one over here. Uh, this could have well, huge implications right across the entire area of the Great Lakes and the surrounding communities. Uh, the work was done by our good friend Fatima Syed, who is a journalist with the Narwhal, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, I, I, I knew there were going to be implications to this, but I, the, the magnitude of this is just overwhelming, isn't it? I'm, I'm with you, Bill. It was, uh, it was a surprise to me as well to find out um, just how extent the long-term damage of, of doing this badly could be. Well, because it involves sewage itself, of course, and there are health implications for that. Uh, Great Lakes water levels, and and you know we've had some back and forth between some of our U.S. friends and us over the years about that, and that's very important. And and ecosystems, uh, which can have long term effects on on the animals that are living here, the plants that we grow. Uh, and in, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, one of the richest, uh, you know, agricultural areas uh, in, in the world, I guess, the Holland Marsh, uh, could be impacted. And if everything goes right, maybe it's going to be okay. But, you know, what are the chances of that? Explain to us exactly how you got into this aspect of it. Um, for sure. So, you know, when the Doug Ford government dropped Bill 23 on Ontario very suddenly, um, it, it's a massive piece of legislation. And, and we've been trying at the Narwhal to unpack, uh, you know, the environmental impacts one by one. And, um, you know, this sewage project in York region has been con- furiously debated for the last 14 years because the health of the Great Lakes has always been at stake. You know, for the longest time, York region wanted to build its own sewage facility to support a growing population, but that would mean dumping wastewater, which, uh, as you and I know, Bill, is, uh, you know, not just sewage, but also, you know, the dirty water that accumulates from doing laundry or the dishes and and also flushing your toilet. Um, So if York Region built a sewage facility in its backyard, that would mean dumping that wastewater into Lake Simcoe, which is a small, shallow, and very sensitive... um, water environment um, that couldn't sustain it. You know, so York Region had this other proposal where it could transfer all the wastewater um, from the Lake Simcoe and Lake Huron watershed all the way south to Lake Ontario, where there already exists a a world-class wastewater treatment facility. Um, Durham wasn't happy about this, you know, the region where that facility exists because they had their own population to think about. So you had this back and forth forever. The provincial government, uh, you know, liberals and conservatives didn't want to make a decision. On the same day Bill 23 was released, the Doug Ford government decided, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to transfer all the waste to Lake Ontario. The problem is, is that transferring water from one lake to another is in violation of a very significant environmental treaty that no one's heard of. It's called the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Agreement. It was signed in 2005 between eight U.S. states and Ontario and Quebec. And it came into force in Ontario in 2014. Now, what that says is that if any of these jurisdictions decide to transfer water for whatever reason, they have to A, inform everyone properly, They have to justify that this is the only option available. They also have to show that it will not damage um, the lake environment. Now, to my knowledge, Ontario has informed, you know, briefly all the jurisdictions involved, but they haven't really offered any details or explained how this will not have any long-term effects. 
And as listeners in Hamilton will know, Lake Ontario is already dealing with unprecedented levels of accidental sewage spills. And now Ontario is looking to, uh, you know, send even more its way. Um, It's so complicated, but, you know, at the heart of it is the fact that we really don't want to destroy these two great lakes. Um, We don't want to harm them in any way because they provide our drinking water and they also just sustain the nature around us. So the question is, is Ontario, um, you know, going through with this proposal in the right way um, with all the details, all the information? And do Ontarians understand every implication? Uh, The answer is probably no (laughs) to to most of those (laughs) questions you just answered or asked rather. Uh, And including the fact that, you know, with this decision that this is where it's going to go right now, uh, part of the infrastructure for this, as you mentioned in the piece here, is is this great big huge uh, pipe that's going to go right through uh, the Oak Ridges Moraine, which is supposed to be an environmentally protected agency. And we have to wonder uh, you know how that's going to impact the infra- the the agriculture, uh, which is such a big part of, of that particular area, and and also the ecosystems. Um, it, it, it's you wonder if they've done the work on this or the research on this. I mean, you know, to solve one problem, are they creating a bigger one somewhere else? Well, this is the thing, right? Development creates more pollution, whether we will like it or not, right? Where you build, you will have more car pollution as more people live there. You will have more waste produced. You will have more, you know, road salt, for example, being used. All of that will eventually drain into the Great Lakes. And, you know, sustainable development requires us to think about these things. You know, a Narwhal reader helpfully sloganed this idea. Um, Before you scoop, you got to plan for the poop, right? You can't dig (laughs) for a house or a building without planning where the waste will go. And what we're seeing now is unfettered development plans across the province. But the question is, do we have the sustainable servicing we need to actually support that development and the consequences after that? You know, in an era of climate crisis, are we thinking ahead of uh, all the pollution and waste that will be created and planning for it appropriately? The answer right now is probably not. Um, but that's why we're, we're having this conversation with the story. Well, and to put this in perspective, and I'm glad you included some of the stats here, uh, we're talking about all of the Great Lakes, which could be impacted, not just uh, Lake Ontario uh, or, or, or Lake Huron. Um, this is the largest freshwater system in the world. Uh, 20% of the world's surface freshwater, 85% of North America's is right there. So, And if you impact one of them, you're impacting all of them, essentially. Well, I think I think that's the, you know, when I put that number in my story, I, you know, me and my editor also took a, mi- a minute because... To think about the fact that 85% of North America's freshwater exists in these Great Lakes and we are planning to, you know, release more wastewater into it is um, is, is something to think about. And, and the consequences of that could be, you know, we might not see it tomorrow, but we will definitely see it in the years to come. Um, and, and with drinking water being as precious as it is, um, we have to wonder, you know, what do we have the policies and the regulations and the thought, the foresight uh, in place to to prevent those consequences? Uh, this, it's very extensive, and, and I, I suggest our listeners, uh, when they got some time, go and check it out on the Narwhal uh, webpage. Because I mean, there's so much here that to, for us to digest and, and talk about here. Uh, the you know you mentioned of course about a lot of stuff's going to get shipped down to, to Lake Ontario. 
which is going to have an impact on water levels, by the way, around the Barry area and, and other places. Uh, and that has long-term consequences to, to the ecosystems there. I mean, there are, there are things that live there, people that live there that, that are going to be impacted by lower water levels. And, uh, and, and you haven't even we haven't even touched on too deeply into the fact that this could be in contravention to a treaty between Canada and the U.S. And then you're going to get messy into the courts too. Uh, I, have they talked about this? I know you tried to get some response from the government here. Are they are they cognizant of this? I mean, the government has repeatedly told me that they are committed to the agreement and they will not. Um, you know, and that's the word being they keep using time and time again that they are committed to the agreement. Um, I think, you know, when you when you submit your homework to your teacher, you also have to, you know, show your work. You know, how did you get yeah. the answers uh, or, 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 or did you just, you know, copy paste it or, or submit what you what the teacher wanted to see? And, and we haven't seen the government show its work. Um, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it, it really is about the vision of, of development, right? What kind of cities do we want? What kind of development do we want? And, and what can we sustain? You know, a, a, a very, uh, an expert that I quote in the story, Andrea Kirkwood, she explains that every, you know, area around a, a water body, like a lake, acts like a bathtub, right? So that all the waste and pollution that is generated will eventually drain into the lake. Our responsibility as the caretakers of this natural land is, are we ensuring that we are, we're not damaging that water too much and that we're not damaging the surrounding environment too much? But when you have development that is in excess of what that Great Lake system can manage, you are inevitably hurting it. And, and that's the big question, right? York Region is going to double in population. Right now it's at 1.17 million people. It's going to double by 2050. Um, and the Ford government wants to send, you know, the waste water produced by that doubled population to the neighboring region. And Scientifically, that doesn't make sense. And environmentally, there are a lot of questions about can we sustain this? And can we can we do it in a way that Lake Ontario, which already takes in a lot of the waste from Toronto, from Hamilton, from Mississauga, can Lake Ontario handle York Region's wastewater as well? Uh, all very relevant questions and, and all questions that we really need to discuss in great detail before they move ahead with some of these projects. Uh, as always, Fatima, thank you so much for this great work uh, by the Narwhal, as usual. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. I'll come back anytime to talk about everyone's poop. You betcha. <laughs> yeah, this, is, uh, this is not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of it. Uh, Fatima Sayed, <laughs> a journalist with the Narwhal. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.